0: Hey, good morning. You are listening to Breakfast Bites, and I am Felicia King. And today we have special guest Ken Dwight, the virus doctor. How long have you been the virus doctor? Is it like a super long time now?
1: (laughs) Actually, I trademarked the name the virus doctor back in 2002. So it's been 20 years.
0: Okay, well, that's that's plenty long enough. We, We won't... Reveal to everyone how far your tenure goes back. <laughs> um, so, so Ken is a business consultant and advisor to IT service providers, and also many internal IT at organizations where those internal IT staff are looking to come to him for some training so that they can stay up to speed on topics, modern trends. Um, you know, like as an educator for their continuing education. He also has his own direct clients. Still runs his own MSP. He has an interesting service where he conducts monthly community meetings for the alumni to his training programs. And as part of that, he provides a list of curated items of current interest for discussion, resources, and also always includes a feature topic. Oftentimes that includes the you know, some other speaker in the industry, who provides their own perspective on that, those particular topics so it's a pretty broad interest and I think it's a fascinating service to have such a a curated list of items of of topic you know current interest in the security industry and the MSP industry and Ken has been doing this as a community service for eighty three months holy biscuits <laughs> eighty three months well, so here he is again doing community service being part of this podcast and I So I talked to Ken and I said, you know, I, I think due to the interesting nature of what you do, it would be really interesting to hear from your perspective, what are the things that you see as trends and interest patterns, you know, given that you interact with so many different MSPs, you interact with your direct customers, you interact with internal IT at organizations that are not IT service providers. So out of that, like really broad swath of the individuals you're interacting with, what were the trends and patterns, things of interest that uh, that you were thinking about? And you came up with a really nice list of things that um, that we should talk about here. From the first one, let's talk about business email compromise. So take it away.
1: Well, of course, business email compromise, also known as CEO fraud, is the, the whole concept of somebody impersonating a C-level executive and sending an email or text or something saying, hey, we, we need to have you transfer this money to this, this entity. It's, it's a hush-hush deal. Don't tell anybody about it. And, and, and it's something that you and I just can't even imagine anybody being that gullible or that, that susceptible to that type of thing happening. But the reason I think it's important to talk about in, in a forum like this is the fact that we tend to be focused on the technological solutions the multiple layers of the stack whether it's hardware software procedures protocols uh, policies whatever and uh, there there is no technological solution to uh, eliminating business email compromise and you know we hear so much and and the whole focus these days is on ransomware and, and obviously well, that's a-
0: there is one solution and it's to take the email away from the ceo <laughs>
1: but then they've got their text or their Oh, voicemail. you're
0: right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> or, sorry. Or, or
1: their, their WhatsApp or <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just, and, and the scale of this is just so incredible to me. I mean, you and I are small business people, micro business people, uh, SMBs are our, our clients. And we hear about these people that, that just say, well, yeah, transfer $53 million to this account. and, and, who does that?
0: Right. But, well, I think it's because we were so used to the Nigerian scam going back, <laughs> what, 20 years at least.
1: Yeah, back back when they were sent by airmail in the, the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the onion skin envelopes and with stamps on them where it cost them something to do it.
0: But, <laughs> and now it costs them nothing to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that I have seen across the board on the cybersecurity insurance applications now is... They're really, really adamant about asking, you know, what does the organization have as a policy associated with, you know, wire transfers or, you know, money authorization? You know, what are your internal human business processes and policies and and have you trained your people in that area? Uh, And so that itself is an operational maturity improvement that wasn't there five years ago, certainly not in the SMB space.
1: And it's really more an issue for the larger large organizations. Uh, you know, the bigger the organization is, the more likely uh, they don't have procedures in place, so they don't have the approvals, or somebody's afraid to to call the, the boss's assistant or or, or whatever. And uh, again, it's a different world from where you and I typically operate. But to me, just kind of a an example that. It, says so much about the whole issue was, and I forget who the company was, I probably wouldn't name them even anyway, but it was a, a contractor or a subcontractor to Airbus that was uh, uh, producing wings or engines or or, or something. And, and so they're used to dealing with these, these multimillion dollar you know, wire transfers. And it was a series of transactions that was something over $150 million dollars. And, and, and the CEO was so proud of himself that he, he caught it uh, and got 80 some million dollars of that back. <laughs> Should I say the former CEO? <laughs> yeah. But uh, so
0: I, I have one client who's um an international manufacturer. They do business in like, I think they told me like 167 countries. I mean, it's, you know, they, so they, they're moving money around a lot. And I recently spoke with, the head of their U.S. division. And it was interesting, all the stuff he told me that they have to go through now with regards to the authorization for these wire transfers, that it requires, you know, one person to log in with MFA to do this, you know, to basically set up the transaction. And then there's a time delay that has to exist. Like, it can't be the secondary person doing the authorization, like right away. There's a five minute delay. You have to wait, which is an interesting thing. I hadn't, yeah. I haven't you know, heard about this before, but now the secondary person goes and does the authorization and ultimately they're not the one who can actually trigger the actual send. It goes back to the first person who's the fir- who then they have to reauthorize it. So, I mean, this is like a really you know, intense process. The thing I found interesting in this conversation was that this executive was not having a whiny complaint session about how cumbersome this process was. They were actually seeing the business necessity of it. So yeah, 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 that's, that's great. And, you know, one of the things you were talking about here triggered my mind in this topic of you know, if we're gonna have the CEOs be part of the solution to this, then they have to be willing to make the time, take the time to do cybersecurity awareness training, to make that a priority in their organization, to be the example to the organization. Um, Also to understand that they are the whale, right? They are the biggest target. So what we can't have out of a CEO what I which I oftentimes see unfortunately is this attitude that says I'm the CEO I get access to everything right yeah. and that and then they want you know greased skids of yeah, access. this stuff doesn't apply to me right well yeah right they want all these like technical control exceptions I just want it to be easy and then it even becomes worse when they get all emotional and and negatively reactive with somebody who is trying to put those pumping of the brakes processes in there to make sure that what was actually intended to happen was intended to be happening by the correct personnel and not by a a malicious actor. So when you have a CEO that gets all emotional and spazzes out on some sort of a technical control person or someone who's just trying to institute a policy or somebody who's trying to make an effort to say, hey, we need to actually take the time to do cybersecurity awareness training in the organization. When they negatively emotionally react to something like that, then they are the problem.
1: Yeah,
0: you know, because they're not paving the way through to uh, the solution in that. and And actually, I see that to be a pretty big problem across the board with you know phishing testing, phishing training, cybersecurity awareness training. And yet we see that what is it in excess of something like eighty six percent of breaches are are coming through the email vector? You know, and and it could be simply, you know, like you like you said, there's no technical controls that are going to be a hundred percent effective at stopping any of that stuff. I mean, the end security layer is the human being. So, how, what are we doing to train the human being? So, the, yeah. these CEOs have got to be part of the solution.
1: And their attitude definitely trickles down. If they're resistant to it, or uh, that's too much work, well, the the people underneath them have uh, perfect excuse to, to not do it either. So. Yeah, it's important. They
0: yeah, and they also are part of the solution or part of the problem in what they allow and tolerate in the organization in terms of permissiveness too. Yeah. Like instead of saying no, guess what you you know you're either gonna have uh, Mr. Ubekey okay or. You know, you're going to have a, a multi-factor authentication app on your smartphone, you know, or you're going to use the, the, the TOTP codes that are inside of the company provided password manager. But like, you know, put the fist down and just say, look, if you're an employee here, you need to comply with these security protocols and objectives instead of saying, ah, you know, that guy's the VP of sales. He brings in like $20 million a year. We're just going to let him do whatever he wants. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. I, I hear that a lot.
0: Uh, (laughs) it's like that's not helping (laughs) that's really not helping (laughs) you know the other side of that that i oftentimes see is i talk to the internal it guys and they're you know they're frustrated because they're trying to make situations better but then you know they got the vp of sales who is saying I just get to do whatever I want. And then when the CEO is saying, well, but hey, that's the VP of sales. They bring in 20 million dollars a year. And I'm like, yeah. give them whatever they want. It's like, no, this is the antithesis of how we have a viable cybersecurity posture for the organization. Anyway, of course I'm they sorry. invalidate
1: our insurance coverage at the same time.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. How much so, is that worth?
0: Uh, right, right. Well, let's get back to the BEC topic. I I had attended a, a really fantastic a webinar put on by uh, Roger Grimes about uh, BEC, and he was expounding upon the, the fascinating layers of uh, infection vector and all the things that you had to do in order to dig into a mailbox and like an Office 365 tenant after it had been compromised. And it was absolutely fascinating um, because he revealed how, um, you know, great. So like all of the tenants now obviously should have uh, external forwarding disabled, right? Cause that used to be a thing, right? You know, hack the mailbox, turn on external forwarding, and then send everything that came in, put it in the deleted set, external forward it, and then put it in the deleted items, right? That was a thing. And that's not really working anymore because now external forwarding is disabled everywhere Um, or should be, right? Or should be. Um,
1: Well, trust me, it's still happening at the consumer level.
0: Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So now it's, There are these interesting forms and, you know, embedded macros and stuff like that. And it just leads to more and more and more of the necessity of having really sophisticated, layered, integrated, AI-based, you know, security protections, which leads into, you know, another thing that you were talking to me about uh, associated with this whole new arena this ecosystem of infrastructure and and threat actors you know jobs that didn't used to exist on the defender side like breach attorneys and then you know you were talking about command and control vendors effectively you and know C2 as a service yeah so why don't you talk some more about that
1: well before we do that one thing i think uh we, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on at least is the fact that that the uh, even though we think of bec as being a large uh Fortune 500 type of issue. It also unfortunately scales down to uh, something that everybody could be susceptible to, the title companies. The, the whole issue of you're you're closing on your house and you show up at the title company and they say, well, we fired the money to this email, uh, to the, the account number you gave us in the email. And uh, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing I am. Any any document or any email from a title company has a big red warning, says, do not follow any alternate instructions uh, as far as uh, uh, where to send the funds uh, without verifying it with us by phone or in person or something like that. And the title
0: companies have been a huge target. And I think real estate agents, too, for that exact reason. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right that BEC, as far as I'm concerned, is a one user environment issue. You got, you got any users, BEC is, you know, I'm like, that's the biggest thing because, you know, you probably have reasonably decent endpoint protection, but what's happening in the, the email vector, there's just, it's, it's inconceivable that it is possible to achieve hundred percent efficacy with email filtering. It's yeah. just never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and he just and- say Roger
1: Grimes has some really useful stuff in terms of uh, how many ways the criminals have of of getting around just about any kind of technological roadblock you try to throw up.
0: Well, to your point, I've seen a huge uptick in the uh, the SMS attacks, the SMS based attacks.
1: I've been getting a lot of those lately, and I don't text anybody hardly. Uh, right. So.
0: Well, almost nobody has my number. I mean, I I suppose if they were a hacker, they could figure it out what my number is, you know, but, (laughs) um, but it's just like, I don't advertise it. Right. And it's just surprising how much of it that we get. So, you know, you're talking about title companies and the risk of the data that's in there. So that mailbox gets compromised and all of that stuff that's in there is compromised. And this is one of the things that's actually frustrated me a lot over I mean, since forever, with regards to email, people seem to think it's a file server, and so they keep way too much stuff in email. And there's no data classification, no data (laughs) classification plan, right? No retention policy, and so now when we say, "All right, we're going to keep all of this excess excess stuff," not like our let's just say last three years of working you know, working data in there and anything really important like contracts and, you know, deals, anything like that, that you really felt like you needed to retain longer, you have a better plan for it. It's on your file server. It's in SharePoint. It's in OneDrive, you know, whatever it's out there. But when we have a good set of retention policies and a good data classification plan saying contracts, um, this kind of sensitive information, these sorts of things do not stay in email other than until the time that that deal closes. As soon as that deal is closed, you know, or that project is completed, this is now the archival process for that. So by simply having those procedures, I think people would tremendously reduce the risk of the data that gets compromised it when there's a single mailbox that gets compromised.
1: Yeah, and that's such a, a perfect example of the importance of not just an incident response plan, but the, the, the very beginning of it, which is to identify those assets and categorize them. And, and uh, uh, who has what, how important they are, what the value is, what the, 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 uh, the cost of, of loss or compromise would be, uh, all that obviously needs to be in place long before uh, it has to be put to good use. But that can prevent so many problems or, or make a recovery so much more straightforward and more predictable.
0: I wonder if small, I mean, like I wonder what the floor is for the size of an organization whereby they have a some sort of an external requirement to have an incident response plan. You know, I mean, we know that everybody should have an IRP. But there is a floor at which, some external party, whether it's cybersecurity insurance or some regulation is saying you need to actually have one. Do you have an idea about what that floor is? Have you seen it?
1: I have not. Uh, but one thing that I have, have kind of preached over the last few years is that you and I have talked about the the different tiers of attackers and of potential victims. And if I were an attacker, I would absolutely see the, the sweet spot as being those, those uh, say, 10 to $50 million uh, in revenue businesses. Uh, they have so much valuable intellectual property, uh, resources that, that, that would could literally take the company down if they lost them or if they got disclosed to, to the wrong people. and they're not big enough, at least I don't think they're big enough to have a really uh, professional in-house IT support team or, or people that, that really can provide adequate protection. So uh, say if I were a bad guy that's what I would see as a sweet spot and, and the most bang for the buck of really going after. And whether it's 10 million or 50 or 100, clearly not a Fortune 500 company or, or one of the highly targeted industries like finance or healthcare or construction, I hear is one of the top targets now. Uh, not sure why, but uh, there again, you're talking about big dollars. So- Real
0: big dollars, yes. Um, I don't, I saw some stuff recently about that. I don't remember all the details, but it was absolutely the construction industry is just getting whacked and whacked hard. Um, You know, your your interest, your range of like 10 to 50 million in in revenue is very interesting because I I think you're spot on with that where there's a like a financial benefit to the attack. It's got to be big enough to have the attack be worth it unless the cost of the attack was, you know, virtually nothing. And then there's a point at which an organization has enough cybersecurity budget and enough operational maturity to the point where they are a hard enough target to where, eh, it's probably not going to be that successful anymore. I actually think that that range is the 10 to 25. I, what I'm seeing probably. is like above 25, certainly above 38, I've been finding they kind of get their act together more.
1: I'm curious, where'd 38 come from?
0: Uh, you know, I talk about everything in terms of personal experience, not I, I try to stay away from hearsay. So that's what I'm actually seeing. Okay. And it's, I think it's really important that when we come up with our strategies, they're informed by our actual interactions with these business decision makers and the, you know, the dynamics of what happens in the politics on the inside of companies. Yeah. The, the one thing I wish that everything would just, oh my gosh, it's just, it would be so incredible. It would be so incredible if everybody could just understand something which is that you, you should have the CEO and the CFO reports to the CEO and IT should report to the CFO. Now, if you asked me that 20 years ago, I would have said hogwash. I've totally changed my attitude on this. The reason is, is because the CFO has the ability to drive the cybersecurity agenda of the organization. The CFO has that ability to set that budget, to delegate that budget, to work collaboratively with the CISO to identify risk and cost of mitigating risk and really taking that risk and putting it into a financial metric of this is the impact of this system being down. And the other thing that the CFO has is a key role Is the ability to enforce the procurement policy throughout the whole organization. Just put the hammer down and say, we are not going to allow higgledy piggledy procurement of technology things. Like you're not going to be allowed to go out and just acquire whatever and then foist it upon IT later on, because that's not how we do supply chain risk management. You know, that's not how we do third party vendor risk management, right? You know, all these things. The CFO is so crucial. And I'm particularly frustrated when I find situations where the CEO of an organization does not understand the essential nature of the CFO. And they'll take the COO and put them above because the COO oftentimes is driving revenue. You know, they're coming up with new business lines and saying, well, again, it's kind of like, you know, VP of sales, you know, I did 20 million. Okay, it's that same thing. You see the COO role doing that. And so the CEO is too frequently spending all this time with the COO and just kind of like relegating the CFO to this, you know, accounting and expense management function and, you know, produce the financial reports and, and the CFO just kind of finds out about stuff as an after effect. And, uh, and it's just, I I never see a success model out of that. What have you
1: seen? Well, uh not very much because again I don't get involved much in the enterprise space, which brings me back to something that you know a lot more about than I do. I, I hear so much about the shadow IT problem. Uh, wh- where does the CFO come into play or get excluded uh, based on on that whole concept? And you might want to expand on that that uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, well, on- well,
0: yeah, I mean, look, think it think about it this way. I mean, I've seen organizations that have a an allowance for the IT department where the it department has like a $50,000 a month credit card spend that's just allowed and the it department doesn't have to be accountable to that they don't have to um, they don't have to plan they don't have to do life cycle management they don't have to predict what needs to go into a capital reserve account uh, they just they're just allowed to spend 50 grand a month on the credit card you know and i mean like my mind is blown from that Um, So, I mean, if I was the CFO, I would feel so powerless that I couldn't even do adequate cost tracking on that. And if I'm the CFO and I have to somehow charge back to business units this IT cost, how do I do that when the IT department doesn't give me any of that data and they're not effectively managing a budget? So that partnership, I think, needs to be there. And I mean, I've also seen it, the frustration sitting on the, on, on the IT side too. Like, great example. The, the number one problem that I see in this area is you have all these business unit managers who are like, well, we want to go out and get this brand. Or you have the CEO who's got a credit card and is dangerous. Okay? <laughs> so they're like, I'm going to sign up. I want to buy this domain, Right. So they go on this binge of buying all this domain and DNS hosting like everywhere. And I actually have a client who's got like 200 domains and there's gotta be 50 to 60 different domain and DNS hosting providers involved. It is an absolute nightmare. So every little time you need to do something like with that domain, you first gotta go look it up in a spreadsheet and go, where the heck is that hosted? where are the credentials oh wait that's not even like an it shared mailbox it's the marketing manager's you know it's registered to the marketing manager right and we don't have his mfa you know it's just so messed up and so because there was no effective procurement policy on the front end and because shadow it was allowed then it just mushrooms out um i've seen the same thing where oh, you'll have like an HR manager, for example, who says, you know, we need to have an employee policy distribution and acceptance system. Well, hey, great. You know what? We have an IT policy distribution and acceptance system that we need to have, right? You know? Oh, hey, but you know what? That fits into the cybersecurity awareness training platform. And hey, you know, we've got a product that that does the phishing and testing and training too. And it does all of that in one, right? Yeah. So if you have a procurement policy that the CFO says, guess what HR manager, pump the brakes, you can't buy anything that even looks or smells a little tiny bit of an inclination like tech, unless you've talked to the CIO and gotten their sign off on the procurement of that thing. Because in the meantime, You've got the IT director and CFO who are saying, we already got that. What are you doing going to go buy the other thing? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this whole thing. Somebody runs out and buys a monitor and it's like, ding dong, it was over here in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, when's the last time you've seen a, uh, an automated inventory of, of, of devices and endpoints that actually matches uh, what they thought they had?
0: Well, you know, to that to that end, I mean, let's go back to a cost management thing. The thing that like this this kind of struggle between you get start getting to these larger organizations of like four hundred users. You got the IT department is trying to meet the needs of the business units, and so you got a line manager who says, "I need a PC." The IT department has been told by executive management, "Get them what they need," right? Because they're making money, so get them what they need. Well, so PCs just keep going out, right? In the meantime. You got the CFO who's over here, who's wondering, why does this business unit of like 15 people have 35 computers? Oh wait, but the CFO probably didn't even know that because IT is not maintaining that inventory. And IT is not empowered to look at that inventory and to tell that business manager, that business unit manager, "Uh, according to our inventory, you've already got all these computers. Like what happened to those things? Like you shouldn't need any more computers. Are you eating them for lunch? (laughs) So, you know, it's this whole thing where, again, like I said, 20 years ago, I I would not have told you that I I was so vociferously at that point in time, I was so vociferously adamantly against IT reporting to the CFO. And now I'm totally converted because I've seen what can happen with a really, really good relationship where... I had a client who, you know, CFO client calls me up and says, business unit manager wants this $20 a month service. Let's look at it. Has me look at it. I run it down. I'm like, well, it's actually going to cost you probably 600 bucks a month. If it's going to deliver you $600 a month worth of value, let's do it. But let's make an informed decision about this. Well, so next thing you know, now it ain't worth 600 bucks a month. So an intelligent CFO with a backed by a procurement policy that has the ability to pump the brakes on this stuff can totally prevent all kinds of chaos. That's my answer on shadow IT.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> there again, you're you're much more exposed to that uh, that issue than I am, but I hear a lot about it, read a lot about it, and I hear the horror stories. Yeah.
0: Uh so you know, we were talking about this business email compromise stuff, and it just led me to believe, it led me to be remembered about how crucially important it is for ongoing proactive security configuration management, especially with regards to Office 365. So what are you seeing in terms of trends in our industry with regards to this, you know, continuous, I kind of characterize it as continuous vulnerability assessment, and it coupled with continuous configuration management, because config management is directly related to vulnerability management.
1: Yeah, and the main thing I see is how much uh, activity there is, how much change, how many layers there are, how many products and services and vendors there are out there. And uh, it, it doesn't ever seem to end, it just keeps getting uh, bigger and bigger. And I don't have a, a an easy button I can press to, uh, uh, Tell me you know, what's the ideal stack, uh, what are the layers, and what are the best products or, or point solutions within that. And so you, you just, at some point, you just have to make a decision and you know, make the best informed decision you can at the time and stay open to either uh, some later hole or vulnerability being revealed or, or uncovered uh, in the in Whatever part of that stack, or uh, a whole new vendor or product or service comes along that maybe uh, replaces or or you know fills some of those gaps more more effectively.
0: So. Well, yeah, right now there's a great debate going on between uh, CyberDrain CIPP and Simeon Cloud, for example. And I find it challenging with any of those products to get a really transparent disclosure of this is the burden rate of the labor involved to get it up and running and then to maintain it and then this is you know your acquisition cost and your run cost and i i, I talked to so many people in the it services industry that don't actually track their burden rate for managing a product nor do they track how much time in terms of R&D did they put into implementing something or vetting it initially. And so I I feel as though the the cost profile of this stuff is totally out of whack. And and to your point, there's so many of these tools and nothing does everything. And so, you know, there's an upper limit as to what you can continue to keep paying for and managing. And I, I feel as though IT service providers are, Um, they're on the receiving end of a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah.
1: And beside that, when a product is really effective, uh, then the criminals will really target it and they'll find ways to beat it. And so then it loses its effectiveness. So it's, it's a continuous game of cat and mouse or rabbit and then whatever other uh, animal might be involved.
0: Well, that that's, that's bush beans right there. The rabbits will decimate your bush beans in your garden. I know that's what they did to my garden this year. Uh absolute carnage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, bush, the bush beans were ass- ass- assassinated by by the yard rabbits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely something I can't contribute any expertise at all to. <laughs> but one thing that, that I was thinking about a little while ago, and then one of the uh, things we were talking about in terms of the tools and the the uh, the difference between uh, what can be automated and that sort of thing. Uh, You've been in the business long enough to remember back when one of the the highest profile hacks that was talked about was Chase Bank. Uh, That's been probably 10 years ago, or it's been a while. And uh, uh, it happens that, uh, well, without going into a lot of history, uh, I I owe a lot of, of my professional career to what has become Chase Bank. Uh, Back when I was in the mainframe days, the the 60s and 70s, uh, a predecessor that was uh, subsequently acquired by Chase. So anyway, I've kind of got a soft spot in my heart for Chase, but they got hit by uh, a significant hack. And I forget all the details, but uh, uh, somebody uh, dug into the, the, uh, uh, the previous year's annual report. And the CEO of Chase at the time was bragging about the fact that they are very security conscious. We have over a thousand people and spend over $200 million a year on our cybersecurity. And they got hacked. So uh, without throwing stones at Chase specifically, that's just an example of uh, uh, if if there's enough money uh, involved as a possible reward, then uh, the criminals are gonna come after you and they will succeed. Well,
0: to, to, you know, to that end, I just saw an article today, I'm pulling it up here, um, that was along that line of the whole CFO topic again. I guess I'm in love with CFOs. (laughs) They can
1: serve a useful purpose.
0: Um, You know, again, that would not have been me 20 years ago. I've totally reformed myself. (laughs) I know it's hug your local CFO month, you know. (laughs) <laughs> but, um, but in this article, you know, it's talking about CFOs and CISOs working together to align cybersecurity risks and goals with larger business objectives, translating cybersecurity jargon into the language of business. And then they also talk further on in this article about um, benchmarking cybersecurity spending against similar organizations. Now, that I am not in love with at all. Because that is a race to. That's a race. That's a. It's it's a garbage race. Okay. It's basically saying you know everybody does. Um. I I say it's a garbage race because I've been on the receiving end of this so much. I I come you know I'll have business owners who will come to me and say oh yeah you know I had dinner with my friends and my friends are in my same industry and they're not spending as much money on IT as we are and it's like okay, but what is their security efficacy? Right? What actually are they paying for? Do you even know enough about their infrastructure to even say that they're comparable? Because I mean, heck, uh, you know, look at all kinds of people in the MSP industry and how differently they operate their businesses. You know, some are really cyber secure, and you know, some are chucking a truck.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So, so the thing I don't like the whole like industry spend comparative. What I think is a heck of a lot better and something that I'm working towards for all of my uh, VCSO clients is to, and I'm I'm working on a new platform where it's, here's where you're at, here's where we need to be, and we need to be here because either the business has said that they need to be there, you know, maybe they have vendor requirements that say we need to be socked to, you know, something like that. Um, or we have cybersecurity insurance requirements, or you know, you're just this big of an organization uh, and then you're regulated in certain ways because of that. Or it could be, you, know, you, have, you have over the threshold of the certain number of records of a type. And as soon as you start hitting that threshold, you're now in the 48 hour window for the breach notification regulations in most state laws. You know, if you've only got 25,000 records or something, that didn't hit the threshold. But you got 500,000 records or something, yeah, that kind of hit the threshold, right? So you have to play ball at a different game. So first, we have to start with this end in mind. What is our end state? Where are we at? And actually do a real honest assessment of it. You know, we need to have the days of the self-assessment just burn. And the reason the self-assessment needs to just burn is because it's not defensible. And we've seen this where, you know, look at the traveler's lawsuit. It's, well, you said you had MFA, but you really didn't have MFA. Well, if you had MFA, prove to us that you had MFA, you know, and I'm simplifying it, right? But ultimately at the end of the day, this is all about attestation. You have to, if you say you're doing something, prove you're doing something. And then let me push the accelerator down on this idea a little bit further. There's a concept called security velocity. And security velocity has demonstrated to me a pattern over time that, you know, you're continually patching things. You're continually improving your overall configuration management. You know, you're, it's like, look at Microsoft secure score as a tiny little microcosm of that. You know, you started down and you're getting your security better and your score goes up and you can see how your score changed over the last year. Well, a really good CISO platform will do this for you, but it has to be actually driven by a CISO who's also like a security architect and not just a compliance ding dong. And unfortunately, too many of them are just paper CISOs. And, but again, that partnership, I think, between the CFO, if if we can get this CISO platform to do what we want it to do, it can quantify and actually prove that spend turned into efficacy. Okay, that's the point of what I'm trying to say here, that it's not this benchmarking, which doesn't mean anything. And the reason it doesn't mean anything is because what your neighbor is doing is not indicative of what you should be doing. You as a business need to define what you need to be doing for yourself, right? You define.
1: And and And, there is a universe that, That can be broken down into comparable kind of requirements and budgets and and that sort of thing, but not just across the board. Well, my buddy that I had drinks with last night is spending this and that sort of thing.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose there's some validity to say industry benchmarks if you're talking about something that is, I mean, real true big data. You know, like look at CyberSaint or Security Studio as an example okay, I'm talking big data, not, you know, I went to drinks with my buddy who's got a business and, you know, I don't spend as much, yeah. you know, I spend more money than he does. So I'm doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> that that's like, that's benchmarking that makes no sense. But I think if, if this whole like cybersecurity adventure thing is going to be improved, the relationship between the CISO and the CFO, the compliance officer, that's all got to be there. But we have to have tools and we have to have measurement systems that said, you know what, you spent 30 grand, you got 30 points out of that. You know, where, how did that spend translate to our measurable cybersecurity improvement or posture improvement? And how, you know, maybe how did that impact the systems that we really care about, right? So if the CFO sits down and says, These are the systems that we're going to die if they're not working. Let's just move the needle on these things first. Well, let's measure the risk at this, quantify the risk for those things and move the needle on it. And I've been barking. I feel like I've been barking at the moon for like three years, talking to a bunch of these SaaS platform vendors and asking about, gee, hey, when are you guys going to give us the level of functionality that require, you know, that we require for this? And uh, I don't know. what, What do you think about that?
1: Well, there again, that's a little bit out of my bailiwick in terms of the uh, the scale, the, the size, the kind of numbers we're talking about. And uh, so uh, I'll defer to you on that.
0: Okay. Well, I'm hoping that CISO platforms can be found and utilized in a cost-effective way because this whole baloney that says you got to go spend $40,000 a year just as your baseline cost just for something like that before you even throw any labor at it, like if that's just your tool cost. It's just an, it's an unworkable starting basis. It's just unworkable.
1: Well, and back to a point you were making a few minutes ago, I think, uh, an often overlooked part of that is the whole ramp up cost, the training, the transition, the migration, uh, which yeah, it may be $600 a month, but, uh, if it takes you, you know, pick a number, 20,000, 50,000, and two years to, to implement it, uh, there's a cost.
0: Well, okay, so to that point, this is another big hot button of mine is people seem to think that there will be someone available to help them either close the cybersecurity compliance gap or to even help them with a problem when they have the problem. And I just don't think that's a realistic expectation. You know, even if you have a regular relationship with an IT service provider, they're not going to actually just suddenly manufacture capacity to throw 30 people at your problem because you've neglected it for five years. So I've been trying to work with clients to get them into a paradigm of, you know, this really needs to be your expected run cost. And part of that expected run cost is we're going to allocate this much per month towards improving you know is it a project is it uh is it an eval is are we doing a policy this month you know maybe you know whatever it is are we doing i just you know you name it i think there's a piece of that budget every month that needs to be allocated towards kaizen some sort of truly proactive needle moving event not just proactive management, like, yeah, we're going to patch your systems. Great. Yes, we all need to have that kind of proactive. That's great. But I'm, I'm talking like next level proactive. Yeah. Like, let's not wait until, you know, if your cybersecurity insurance premium is due on March 1st, do not start like trying to close those cybersecurity gaps on December 31st, because that ain't happening.
1: Well, the other thing that uh, I have some of my real estate clients to thank for making me aware of the whole concept of deferred maintenance, you know, it's whether it's a house, a car, uh, a a vacant lot, uh, or your cybersecurity, well, we'll we'll get around to that, or we don't need to spend that money yet. And, and, uh, uh, but uh, it's the whole pay me now or pay me later type thing.
0: Well, you know, and the deferred maintenance topic, you know, I think that's a phenom- it, that's just like where you have to have your capital reserve account, you need to be shoving money in there on a regular basis. You've got to do your life cycle management. Cuz you know, if you didn't replace that server in year 7 when you should have, when are you going to? When it crashes? Right. And now you can't run your business anymore. Oh wait, there's this thing called the supply chain. We can't run over to Best Buy and just go get the fifty thousand dollars server mm-hmm. that we needed. You know, like you know, you're going to be waiting for a while for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, deferred maintenance is is definitely you know another problem I see with deferred maintenance is so many of the software providers are literally they have lost their code developers that were the only ones that understood how to deal with all of the premise software that they had. So even if they wanted to improve the code base of that premise software, they don't have the people anymore. Yeah. So they're just, you know, chucking it and go into SaaS because they're like, well, we're going to make more money in SaaS, and we don't have the developers to do the premise software anymore. They've just got too much technical debt with it. The only thing that they can do is literally just migrate somebody off of it. Uh, And so how much money does migrate somebody off cost versus just maintaining what they had?
1: If that's even an option.
0: Well, so how do people navigate this when they don't have a CISO?
1: They hire you or me. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Oh, so they they basically need to get a CISO <laughs> so, <laughs> right <laughs> right they need to get a you know part-time CISO but bottom line they need to have a CISO yeah <laughs> okay. um all righty well thanks for the time Ken this has been fantastic and it's been fun I uh I appreciate having uh, the input of you know your perspective what you're seeing out there in the industry and I think that's how we're all more successful over time is, you know, sharing ideas and what are we seeing trends and helps us be um, more thoroughly thoughtful about what it is that we need to be prepared for changes every day.
1: Yeah, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is the fact that some of, of the advice that I give, the insight I have, the things that I know, are not things I can say, oh yeah, I know this because this and this and this, it's because I've been in the industry for so long. I've seen so much. And, and just to uh, give it a little bit different perspective, uh, I started as a programmer trainee in 1966. So that's 15 years before the IBM PC was introduced. So I, I won't say I've seen it all, but I've certainly seen every generation of, of what we now know as the IT industry.
0: And well, it's like history repeating itself.
1: Exactly. Uh, in, in uh, different scales, different measuring methods, and, and uh, uh, different perspectives, different world situations. But uh, you, you see enough of this and enough variations over the years, you can kind of read between the lines and, and, and see. And I give you some examples, but we don't need to go into that. But at any rate, it's it's been a fun ride, and I, I plan to keep doing it for a while longer.
0: I mean, all the people that I know that are producers, they're not retiring. Yeah, I I don't know anybody that's retiring. They're just can they're just keeping on and keeping on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even the ones who right. cash out, you know, and then they a few weeks later they're bored and start something new.
0: <laughs> oh well, maybe that's why I already got a farm. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me from being bored. All right, thanks for your time, Ken.
1: Thank you, Felicia. It's been fun.